Hello, free thinkers. I'm Mickey Z, and I welcome you to Post Woke, the New York City-based podcast where we practice intellectual self-defense. To get a feel for what passes for anti-racism in clown world these days, let's get situated in summer 2020 in the woke capital of the world, Seattle, Washington. In Seattle, there's a neighborhood called Finney, which is served by something called the Finney Neighborhood Association, or PNA. And according to its mission statement, it builds, engages, and supports a diverse community through programs, services, activities, and so on. And it's headquartered in a former elementary school. Now, inside those headquarters, there was once a small water fountain located in the lobby. In 2012, they installed a modern ADA accessible water fountain and bottle filler as part of a larger accessibility and conservation project. Logically, they kept the smaller water fountain because it was ideal for small children to use. In light of the summer 2020 protests after the murder of George Floyd, however, the PNA had a major anti-racism awakening. Quote, we did not realize at the time that the presence of the two separate water fountains could bring up imagery of racial segregation. Facility staff first heard about the second water fountain making some community members uncomfortable on July 8, 2020. After brief consultation with PNA leadership, maintenance staff removed the small fountain on July 10, 2020. A far more recent example of anti-racist behavior in the woke world um, was highlighted by Barry Weiss very recently in her Substack, and I'll link to her Substack in the show notes. She explains that parents across the country have gotten very organized against the unpopular ultra-woke politics that are seeping into public school classrooms. And there's a movement now called Curriculum Transparency, and this would have schools They'd be required to post lesson plans, teacher trainings, and curricular materials so that parents can keep up with what their children are learning. Now, side note, um, there are some extremely right-wing laws that are banning, trying to ban any kind of quote-unquote political curriculum. This is not what Barry's writing about. This is not what I'm talking about. Curriculum transparency is is a holistic term looking at all the different aspects of your child's curriculum. So Barry Weiss explains, this idea seems extremely reasonable to me and puts the left in the unenviable position of having to argue against government transparency. However, one group on the left took the bait. And I'll give you two guesses what it is, because of course, it is the American Civil Liberties Union, a.k.a. ACLU, that is suddenly speaking out against the freedom of information in the name of anti-racism.
For now, I'll offer one more example of woke anti-racism, and this comes courtesy of Mark Crispin Miller, who also has a Substack and will also be linked into uh, the show notes. Mark recently shared a letter he received from a man in Berkeley, California, who belongs who belonged to a gym called Bay Strength. And he explained that he belonged there for two years and but was abruptly kicked out. And the reason was he the gym owner found out that this man was applying for a job as a police officer. Now the man writing the letter, FYI, is South Asian, therefore by definition is a person of color. Um, so he goes on to say, they don't want me to train there because I'm becoming a police officer because police officers are racists. What's confusing me is that the four owners of the gym are all white progressive, but I am a person of color. I had known all along they were liberal, but I had no idea they could refuse me entry to their gym based on my choice of vocation. Now, when he complained, one of the owners of Bay Strength wrote to him explaining, quote unquote, their logic, quote unquote. I cannot support you becoming a police officer in any regard. It would be a violation of my principles and the gyms to assist you in this particular journey. Both I and Bay Strength support the Black Lives Matter movement for racial justice. While the demands of that movement are broad, one of the key focuses is on dismantling systemic racism as upheld by the state and includes a demand to defund the police. While I do not believe you harbor racist attitudes, that is the structure you will be expected to uphold as a police officer, and I personally cannot coach you to prepare for this role. If you ever change your mind, you are welcome to reach back out. Close quote. So the man who was tossed from the gym explains that I've seen the damage that has been done by demonizing the police. If we are speaking purely in the language of numbers, the CDC says that hospitals kill about 200,000 Americans every year, while it's agreed that the police shoot and kill about 2,000 Americans a year. If we are to follow the science here and look at pure statistics, why aren't we defunding the hospitals? I'll be right back with some thoughts on climate change right after this word from our sponsor. Hey, Mickey Z here with a few messages before we get back to the show. I'm asking you to become a paid subscriber to Post Woke. To do so, it's very simple. Just go to mickeyz.substack.com. The link is in the show notes. And there, for just $5 a month, less than 17 cents a day, you can support what I'm doing and get a steady flow of podcasts, articles, and other content, including perks that are available only to paid subscribers. So I thank you in advance for making that commitment. It really makes a difference. In addition, if you'll scroll through, scroll through the show notes, you'll see that I have a link in there for the project I do to help homeless women in New York City. Your support is most welcome. There's a link in there for a very cool post-woke podcast t-shirt to let people know what your favorite podcast is. And there's also a link in there for my NFT digital art photography. If you're interested in non-fungible tokens as a collectible, please click that link, check it out, and maybe maybe buy yourself a collectible work of art. So on that note, thank you again. And most importantly, please consider becoming a subscriber at mickeyz.substack.com. And now let's get back to the show. I'm going to talk about climate change 
but not really about climate change. My challenge to you, dear listener, is to hear what it is I'm saying. I will not be taking a stand or choosing a side vis-a-vis climate change. That is secondary to this discussion. I will, however, be exploring how and why we may each come to our point of view on such a potentially weighty subject. Now, conventional wisdom tells us that recent human behavior has created conditions that lead to disastrous climate change, previously called global warming. But what we know about history, or think we know about history, whatever that may be, other sources of climate change seem to exist, like complex gravitational interactions, including changes in the Earth's orbit, or the Earth's axial tilt, or the Earth's torque, all of which can influence climate patterns and ultimately lead to noticeable variations in seasons. Gradual slight variations in the Earth's orbit around the sun can strongly influence temperature extremes, along with changes in the sun's energy, volcanic eruptions, and movements of tectonic plates. Now, speaking of tectonic plates, it's an ideal topic to highlight highlight how slowly the science, now just think every time I say the words of the science, I'm doing air quotes. So let me start again. Speaking of tectonic plates, it's an ideal topic to highlight how slowly the science changes. The idea of continental drift was first proposed in the early 20th century, but it wasn't until the 1970s that tectonic plate theory was quote-unquote settled or accepted as fact. Translation, we know precious little about the earth but yet are so ready to use words like fact to describe our minuscule knowledge. And once something is deemed factual, the science lines up behind it and thus becomes proof for it. I mean, think about, let's return to the climate change concept here. If you challenge the theory that the current climate change is primarily caused by human behavior, the one, the first thing someone will tell, say to you sarcastically, is like, "Yeah, and that's why ninety-seven percent of the scientists think the opposite." It's like the number of scientists agreeing on something seems to be considered proof in this country or in in this world. While the past two years, the pandemic has shown us how insane and counterproductive this approach is. The number of scientists that have been wrong about COVID, lockdowns, vaccinations, and so on, is frightening. But those scientists, when you say most scientists agree, what you're saying is most scientists are involved with the same monetary interests as other scientists. So this foundation that most science agree has, again, it does. I don't care right now where you care, stand on climate change, but if your only logic for, stand, for agreeing with the, with the conventional wisdom on climate change is that most scientists agree that's not logic. Now, I understand, speaking of things that sound logical but aren't logical, I understand that it's tempting to say, well, relatively recently, humans created all these industries and chemicals and factories and automobiles and so on. So it sounds logical that they would, that these brand new technologies would impact our ecosystem in a way that had never been impacted before. 
it sounds logical, but it also sounds logical that a cloth mask would block germs, but it doesn't. You see, science needs far more proof than just empirical guesswork that sounds logical to the majority of pre-programmed humans. Even when they offer scientific proof of climate change, we just are trained to trust it because that's because it's a scientist telling us. Um, we, if a scientist says that current climate conditions are unlike anything we've seen before, how do we know that's true? How do they know that's true? I mean, just think how often um, discoveries are made and they immediately invalidate a previous discovery. I mean, only recently have, has, have a paleontologist begin making the guess that some dinosaurs had feathers. I mean, think about it. Almost everything we know about dinosaurs is colored by a century of pop culture. We don't know what dinosaurs sounded like. We know what Spielberg assumes they sound like, but we don't know. We know precious little about them. Scientists are not immune to this societal pressure. And now, of course, you'll say to me, yeah, but when they dig up the bones, yeah, they dig up bones. That doesn't mean that the extrapolations they make based on a single leg bone that they find are accurate. I mean, have you ever seen out of context the skeleton of a hippopotamus jaw? Complete that of context, you would think it was some prehistoric monster rather than a creature that lives among us now. So, again, I am not saying that climate change isn't real, and I am not saying that everything we believe about dinosaurs is wrong. What I'm saying is, how do we know any of this stuff, and why do we so automatically trust scientists? And I'm going to take a quick side note here because I already compared this to the pandemic. There's another way that the that um, the climate change discussion uh, dovetails with the pandemic because the elites, the, the powers that shouldn't be, always try to push the blame off on the little guy. Like when it comes to climate change, we're the ones who have to bring our own bag to the market while the spotlight is never on the corporations that, that devastate the environment across the globe. And we're the ones who have to wear masks and stay home while the rich party and steal all our money. Just remember, those in power will always exploit a crisis to consolidate that power and increase their wealth. Sometimes, of course, they will manufacture a crisis in order to speed things up. What we've been living through for the past two years is an example of this. In terms of climate change, we may or may not have been living through a manufactured crisis for multiple decades. Even the honest scientists are part of the system and are informed and influenced by the tainted work of corporate scientists. If we are being lied to by big pharma, big tobacco, the automobile industry, and so on, why do we suddenly believe corporate science is telling us the truth about the climate? Never forget that the powers that shouldn't be primarily use science as a way to exert their authority. I'm not denying anything, but I am pointing out the chronic mass psychosis at play. We believe what we're told to believe. We ignore what we're told to ignore. We also embrace the gloom and doom because it empowers us to virtue signal. We look like the good guys when we wear a mask or we recycle our plastics. Even better, wear a mask with a recycle symbol on it. Pro tip, the elites also love to virtue signal. It enhances their brand when they pretend to care about racism, gay rights, or the environment. 
it also increases the likelihood that we will turn to these high-profile experts to fix the crises they claim are happening. In such a setting, how do we know when we're being lied to and manipulated? Is it even possible to know unless you step outside the system and ask questions that may get you ostracized? Even if the climate is changing because of humans, who can we trust to educate us on this crucial topic? In fact, who can we trust to educate us on what to do about this crucial topic? Now, I like to think I'm offering you some important questions, potentially life-altering questions, but right now I'm most interested to know your unfiltered answers to these inquiries. Can you hear this podcast segment without getting defensive? And can you actually hear what it is I'm saying? While you ponder that, I'll leave you with this thought. At this moment, there is something that matters far more than whether or not the ecosystem is dying at the hands of human beings. That something is, where do your opinions come from? Unless you're practicing intellectual self-defense, I'm making the safe assumption that your opinions aren't really your opinions. I'll be right back with my story of the week. I grew up sharing space with cats since I was four years old, and my family adopted a kitten we named Rusty. This imprinted felines onto my psyche in a profound way. It's been decades since I've lived in a building that allows pets, yet my bond with cats remains as strong as ever. I used to visit New York City's cat cafe, I feed local strays, I dote on local bodega cats, and I regularly overdose on kitty memes and videos. There are other interesting manifestations of my cat connection, however. This confession may sound odd, but I'm certain I am not alone. Sometimes when I turn out the lights and hit the sack, I experience the the sensation of a cat jumping up onto the bed from the floor. The gentle landing and the subtle shake of the mattress is a feeling I remember well, and I always need a moment to remember that I do not have a feline companion. Or do I? This is not the only magical kitty moments I've encountered. When my parents moved to Texas, I visited them often. This meant spending lots of time, quality time, with Tina and Mr. Lucky, their cats. After a week or so, I got awfully used to having two cats scurrying about. When I'd returned to my apartment in Astoria, I could swear I'd occasionally catch sight of them out of the corner of my eye. Having recently acclimated to the presence of felines, my brain would initially process it as nothing out of the ordinary. After a beat, I'd do a silent movie-level double-take and end up disappointed that I was indeed alone. Or was I? Then there was a more persistent variation on this theme. I was married at the time, and my wife's parents asked if we could foster their cat, Boots, while they took a two-week vacation. After much cajoling, our landlord gave us permission and Boots arrived for his stay. We loved his presence, except for the very early breakfast wake-up calls. I could still recall sitting at my desk working on a film screenplay. Boots insisted on laying across my lap, leaving me to position my hands awkwardly to reach the keyboard. I wondered aloud if this was how William Goldman got his start. 
After two weeks, we kissed the lovable boots a tearful goodbye, and I'm guessing you could surmise where this is going. Yep, you simply cannot tell me that boots didn't visit us every now and then over the next month or so. My wife and I kept catching glimpses of him here and there throughout our small one-bedroom apartment. And yes, both of us felt Boots jumping up onto the bed to join us as we slept, even though this couldn't be true. Or could it? Now, type in something like mystical powers of cats into your nearest search engine. Results range from claims that cats are secretly dragons to reports on the healing powers of a feline's purr. Most interesting to me were the copious anecdotal reports that dovetailed with mine. More than a few folks touted the astral travel skills of your average house cat. This would somewhat explain how cats um, related to me could miss me and come visit. However, I still don't know who is responsible for the bed jumping sensations I occasionally feel today. As a lifelong question asker, I do my best to stay open to as many possibilities as I can. Simply put, I cannot prove or disprove any theories about a cat's ability to engage in astral projection, and neither can you. However, there is one particular bit of feline magic I witnessed and documented firsthand. You see, once Rusty moved in a million years ago, my mother and sister became cat ladies for life. As for me, well, I just explained it. I'm addicted. My dad, that was a more complicated process. He welcomed Rusty because he saw how badly the rest of the family wanted her. Being a great father, he agreed. Next came the legendary Shanty. Then my all-time favorite, Pumpkin Puss. Before long, there was an endless parade of cats passing through our humble abode. In one instance, a tabby named Abigail gave birth to six kittens in my sister Deborah's bedroom. We ended up keeping two of them. Missy was bonded with Deborah. The other kitten was Ditto. Ditto was named because he kind of sort of looked like Shanty, who got her name because she was found in a neighbor's backyard shanty. My dad had warmed up considerably by then to the never-ending array of cats, but Ditto stole his heart. This strange little boy loved to eat saltine crackers and lettuce. It was completely normal in my home to enter the living room and find my federal agent father patiently holding a cracker for Ditto to very sloppily munch on. Fast forward to Texas. Both of my parents religiously fed the strays near their apartment complex. One particular cat, a tortoise shell, really clicked with my dad and his cat lady status escalated. Even, if my, even after my mother and Mr. Lucky passed away, Dad never missed a day feeding his outdoor friends until he had to spend time in the hospital. I flew down immediately, and please allow me to introduce a brief sidetrack to, to me seeing my poor sick dad in the hospital. Dad was very disoriented and at times could be difficult with the staff. My sister opted to not tell him I was coming. She picked me up at the airport and let me drop off my stuff at dad's apartment. After she and I fed the tortoiseshell cat, it was off to the hospital. Deborah entered the room first saying, you have a visitor. I waltzed in and will never forget the expression of surprise and deep love on my father's face when he saw me. I can't believe you're here, he gasped. I assured him that as soon as I heard he was sick, I booked a flight. That's because you're my guy, was dad's response. 
I often replay those words in my head whenever I'm missing him more than usual. Later, as I sat by his bed, the confusion suddenly returned. He tried to spring to his feet. I jumped up to keep him in place. What's wrong, Dad? Where do you want to go? He pointed at the clock. It's past four o'clock. I'm late to feed the cat. I gently explained that he was in the hospital and I would handle the stray feeding until he was back home. We had to go through, through this routine a few more times before he finally settled down. My dad lived another year or so in that apartment and fed the tortoiseshell right up to the end. When he had to move to a senior center, Deborah arranged for some of dad's neighbor, neighbors to take care of the strays. So yeah, I very much believe in the supernatural power of cats. After watching my dad happily transform into his own version of a cat lady, I have no doubt that these incredible felines carry with them some very special and unique gifts if we're willing to remain receptive and open. And I thank all of you for remaining receptive and open and for keeping your guard up.